Well, there's a story from the American Civil War about a General John Sedgwick uh, who fought on the Union side. And one day before battle, Sedgwick was out with his troops on the front line. And when his soldiers came under fire from a group of Confederates based over a mile away. Well, as the bullets came whistling in, uh, his men dived for cover. But Sedgwick stood firm. He rebuked his men for cowardice, telling them they couldn't hit an elephant at that distance. But as it happened, those were his last words. Uh, he was struck by bullets and fell down dead. The generals had assumed that the enemy were carrying only short-range weapons. In fact, they had the latest rifles with telescopic sights. They had seen the enemy. He dismissed them as being too far away, too weak and ultimately irrelevant. And his dismissal had fatal consequences. Well, I wonder if to some people in society today, uh, the church and Christianity itself uh, can seem irrelevant. If you look on TV or in the newspapers, there are other things that are portrayed as being far more important. Uh, celebrities, uh, the state of the economy, who's winning the test match cricket. And when the church does get in the media, it's normally for the wrong reasons. Uh, arguments about sexuality or church leaders pushing some unorthodox belief. And I wonder, even if for us, inside the church, we can fall into this view of society that our faith really is irrelevant. Nice for us, perhaps, but not a truth to which everyone is subject. When we go to school or to work, and when we talk to our neighbours, we meet people who don't believe what we do. And a lot of them seem to be doing okay for not believing it, in terms of their careers, and their relationships, their general life satisfaction. They seem to be doing as well, if not better, than some of us. As on Sunday mornings, our trips to church get replaced by trips to B&Q, we might find ourselves asking if what we believe really matters. Is Christianity just irrelevant for today? Well, if we ever find ourselves asking that question, uh, that gives us something in common with Zachariah's original audience. You see, after a catastrophic fall, after which Jerusalem had been destroyed and the Israelites taken into exile, the people had been allowed to return uh, into their homeland. As God promised them, after 70 years in in exile, Israel had gone home. But even as they returned, they would have been asking whether the faith that they had held to still meant anything. You see, in the promises that God had given them when they were in exile, they had this hope of a great restoration. So as we heard a few weeks back, Isaiah had promised them that when they returned, Jerusalem would be a great city. Kings and queens from the nations around them would pay them tribute bringing in their wealth and tribute to serve God. And Ezekiel has written that they have a new temple, this kind of vast Olympic stadium-sized structure, in which it would be the centre of their relationship with God, in which they could worship him. So they're living with some great promises, but when they looked at what they could see around them, the reality seemed very different. The city was a ruin, and the temple was nothing like they might have imagined. The foundations had gone in, but it was looking pretty tiny. Israel was meant to be this great nation, but in reality they were a few miles square, maybe double the size of the Isle of Wight, with about as much political influence. On the the international stage, Israel was an irrelevance. And in that situation where God's promises seemed to have come to nothing, they would have been wondering if their faith meant anything at all. And it's into that situation 
into which Zechariah speaks, and more importantly, into which God himself speaks. So you see in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. God speaks to reassure his people that he's faithful to his word. God hasn't forgotten his people, and he'll bring his purposes about. God is the Lord Almighty, or in the other version, the Lord of hosts. Literally, it's the Lord of armies, a king at the head of the armies of heaven. No matter how the world seems, God is the one who's in charge. He's a God who acts, a God who goes into battle to bring about his purposes. He's a God who should not be underestimated. And through Zechariah, it's this God who gives his message to the people of Israel. Just breaking down the chapter, briefly speaking, verses 1 to 6 about the past, and verses 7 to the end of the chapter are about the future. So first of all, uh, God's message is, God was faithful to his word of judgment, so return to him. To the people in Zechariah's day, living amidst the ruins of their city, it might have looked as though God's promises of blessing had come to nothing. But Zechariah says their present circumstances haven't come about because God's word has failed, but because God's word has been fulfilled. And we see that in the warning of verse 4. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. You see, God's promises to his people in the Old Testament gave them a choice. As a nation, Israel was given the task of representing God to the world around them, of representing God to the other nations by the way they lived. As Israel followed God's rules for living, the nations around them would see that their God is the only God worth following. As they followed God's law, they would stand as a witness to the other nations. The blessings they received from God would show that their way of living was right, that their God was true. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests to the other nations. But God did give them a choice. If they chose to ignore God's rules, God could no longer endorse their way of living. And so they would exclude themselves from God's blessing. And that's something we can see in the words that Moses spoke to them from the beginning. Back then Moses had said to them this, If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God shall bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. Well, to begin with, the Israelites were keen to follow God. But as time went on, they fell away. Time and again, they ignored God and turned instead to relying on other gods and relying on the alliances they could make with the other nations around them. So over many years, God sent them prophets uh, calling them to turn back, to return from evil. But time and again, the prophets were ignored and not listened to. As was written at the end of the book of Chronicles, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, 
until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. After hundreds of years of disobedience, God finally acted on his promise. The alliances with the other nations weren't bad, the other gods couldn't help them, and the Israelites were conquered, first by the Assyrians and finally by the people of Babylon. And as the disaster came upon them, the Israelites saw God's hand in what was going on. To give you one more verse, and Lamentations 2, verse 17 says, The Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. Disaster came not because of God's absence, but because of God's presence in judgment. And that's something we see acknowledged in Zechariah. So the reason for the situation the people were in wasn't that God's word had failed, but because God's warning of judgment had been fulfilled. So verse 5, Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But it is not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants the prophets, overtake your forefathers. God's judgment, of which the people had seen the consequences, in one sense, acts as a warning. Don't make the same mistakes that your forefathers did. But at the same time, it's the only thing that can give them hope. The situation isn't just the result of some chance happening. It happened according to the word of the Lord. And it's the same Lord who gives them hope for the future. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. God's faithfulness in the past, acting in judgment, points towards his faithfulness today, acting in mercy. In previous generations, the Israelites had turned away from their God and experienced this terrible judgment. Their homes had been destroyed, they had been taken into exile. But God's grace is such that no matter how far people have strayed from him, they can always come back. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. Now it might be that for some people here, you can feel some common ground with the Israelites, in that as you look at your life, you see that there are things that shouldn't be. And I'm not trying to make generalisations. Now there are many reasons, there are many things that can make life difficult. But if we take this passage seriously, one reason for life being hard is that we ourselves have gone wrong. Through the way we've spoken or acted, or through a wrong attitude that we've held, life has ended up in a mess. And if that's you, then the solution is right here. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. Regardless of how far we've gone away, we can always turn back to God. And that's why the Bible encourages us to admit our failings, to confess to our faults. Earlier in the service, Hannah led us in a prayer of confession. When we go wrong, the first step is to turn around. And Zechariah tells us, as we turn to God, God is there to meet us. Well, as Israel saw, God had been faithful to his word of judgment, and they turned back to him. They repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. And in the next few chapters of Zechariah, we see God's response to that. God responds in a series of eight visions, and over the next few weeks, we'll be looking through each one of those. Taken together, they expand on God's promise. They show what it means when God says, I will return to you. 
Well, this morning we're just going to focus on the first two of those visions. But before that, I thought it'd be worth just taking a moment to think about uh, how we are to understand uh, these visions. It's exactly why it's not one of the most commonly read books of the Bible. And perhaps one reason for that is that its language can seem quite difficult, maybe quite obscure, quite unfamiliar. Across all these different visions, you've got uh, lots of horses of different colours, uh, bits of furniture, trees, women with wings like birds, all, all kinds of stuff. So how are we going to understand it? Well, if this helps, uh, imagine with me for a moment uh, that uh, you're driving off on your summer holiday, uh, you're going down the motorway, uh, the sun's shining, and uh, the road is clear of traffic. When suddenly, you see this. Well, just from the picture, you know straight away what's ahead. The road looks clear, but you know in a mile or so, you're going to be negotiating your way through traffic gangs. You're going to be stuck in a queue, or worse. From what you can see straight ahead, there's nothing in your way. But the road sign tells you your true situation. And implicit in that is the need to take action. You might have to slow down, at least you might have to add a few minutes to your expected arrival time. And in a way, that's that's a bit like how these visions work. As the people of Israel look around themselves, they might have come to a certain set of conclusions. It might seem to them like their God had abandoned them. It might seem that the promises were meaningless, that their faith was irrelevant to the world they lived in. But the visions show them their true situation and tell them to act accordingly. And a bit like the road signs, um, the visions communicate in a symbolic way. So, so when we see the road sign, we know not to expect a kind of solitary black man with like a spade and a pile of earth, sort of bent over like this. You see, not all the details of the road sign are important. And it, but if we didn't know what a, a car was, if we didn't know what a motorway was, uh, we might struggle to understand it. Well, that's like the vision. We have to try and get ourselves into the world, into the culture of the time. When we get into the culture of the Bible, we can understand what God was saying to people then. So anyway, on to the rest of the passage. Uh, Zechariah tells us, uh, God is faithful to his word of blessing, so build his church. When the first vision, uh, Zechariah is standing in a ravine with some trees, and he sees there a man on a horse, and with him more horses of different colours. At this point, you might want to know, why all the trees myrtle trees? Why are the horses of different colours? What does it mean? Well, there's no explanation for that. In fact, there might not be a reason for these things. But the man in the vision does explain what the people are doing. These are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And that gives us the key to the vision. So you see, uh, these days in Britain, uh, people sometimes talk about living in a surveillance society. Our records, details of where we live, what we do and what we buy, are all kept on computers, owned by companies and various government agencies. It's hard to walk down the street or go into a building without being filmed on CCTV. Everywhere we go, we're recorded on camera. Now some people say that's a good thing. Uh, Perhaps uh, CCTV cameras uh, prevent crime. But other people would say, yeah, that's a bad thing. We don't want to be watched all the time. But I think something that people would agree on is that there's a link between knowledge and power. If you know what's going on, then potentially you've got the power to change it. And that's exactly what's going on in the vision. You see, in those days, the king of Persia, Darius, didn't have CCTV, but he did have lots of men with horses. 
So if you wanted to know what was going on in the world, he'd send out men on horseback to go around the empire and find out. And if the king didn't like what was going on, then he had the power to act in order to change it. But look at the vision, because these aren't the king of Persia's horses. These are the ones the Lord has sent. The king of Persia has got some kind of power over events. He's he's like the head of one of the biggest empires in the world. But it's the God of Israel who's really in charge. And in verse 11 we see the message that's brought back uh, to the Lord. We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Uh, Most of the time in the Bible, being at rest, being at peace, is good. But here, peace is actually a bad thing. So as you can see in the next verse, the angel goes on to ask God, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the towns of Judah? Peace and rest goes with God not having mercy here. It's not good. So peace here is a bad thing because God's promise, his word to Israel, has not been fulfilled. God had promised that Israel, his representatives on earth, would be a great nation, when actually they aren't great at all. While at the same time the nations all around are at rest, they're indifferent about what's happened to God's people, and they're indifferent about God himself. As far as the nations are concerned, God is an irrelevance. Well, they're just happy getting on with life. And in verse 14, we see God's verdict on the situation. God isn't indifferent, but he cares deeply about his people. As he says, I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. This is a God who is passionately devoted to his people, and God will act to be faithful to his word of blessing. The temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt and God will bring prosperity to Israel. His word of blessing will be fulfilled. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. So what does that mean for the people of Israel? Well I think undoubtedly what God promises, when he promises prosperity, that has a material component. While if people are poor, God will make them materially well off. And that can raise a question for us. You see, if God made people materially well off then, will he do the same for us now? Or is God's blessing only something spiritual? Well, I've been reflecting on this, and I think for the majority of Christians, uh, the answer is yes, actually God does give us material prosperity. But we have to be pretty careful about the way we think about that. You see, prosperity here is promised to people living in the 6th century BC, not to people living in the 21st century AD. God promises what people then understood by prosperity, not what people now would like it to mean. And if the promise applies today, it must mean the same now as it did then. So if it happens to be uh, this morning that you live in a house uh, rather than in a tent, if it happens to be that you've got enough food to eat and enough to drink, we'll be glad. God has given you material prosperity. But probably the danger for us is more that we end up with the wrong kind of prosperity. You see, for the Israelites, prosperity was much more than about material things. As we saw in verse 3, the key promise of God isn't to give them stuff. It is, I will return to you 
Fundamentally, God isn't promising them wealth as much as he is promising himself. More than anything, they get God. And if we look at the passage, there are actually two kinds of prosperity going on. On the one hand, the nations around Israel have prosperity. They're at rest and in peace. They've got the good things in life. They're doing well. It might be they don't think so much about God, but then why would they need to? They're perfectly happy, just as they are. The nations have prosperity without God. Well, on the other hand, Zechariah talks about a different kind of prosperity in verse 17. It might involve doing materially well, but fundamentally it's about God, about knowing him, and about living in relationship with him. Which I think raises a real question for us. Which kind of prosperity do we enjoy? So we've got houses and cars and clean running water and TV and healthcare and fridges. All these things. Day by day we live lives that the king of Persia could only dream about. But do we really have prosperity? In our society we've got so much stuff, so many comforts, that it would be easy to think we're prosperous when all the time we've only got the prosperity of the nations, a quiet satisfaction with our own situation, coupled with a general indifference towards God. Zachariah's prosperity is something that goes far beyond that. So I think this morning Zachariah calls us to test ourselves. And if it helps, I think we can see which kind of prosperity we've got when the cracks start to appear in our lives, when we realise the material prosperity we have doesn't last. If you lost your job or your health, if your family deserted you, if your bank account got credit crunched, would you still have your prosperity? Well, test yourself because the material comforts we enjoy now won't last forever. And if material comforts are all you've got, Zachariah's words speak to us. Don't be content in indifference, but find your satisfaction in the Lord. When we realise that we need something more than comfort and happy circumstances, we open ourselves to the kind of prosperity that God promises Israel, something that lasts into eternity and which is found in God himself. God calls us to return to him and to live lives in his service, seeking the prosperity that only he can give us. And in the last vision of the chapter, God shows us the result of living such a life. Early on we read from Lamentations the acknowledgement of God's judgement. God exalted the horn of Israel's foes. He gave the victory to them. But in this vision, the situation is reversed. The four horns which represent the powers that defeated Israel are themselves thrown down by the four craftsmen. Going back to Zechariah's time, this image of the craftsman fits in with the building of the Temple of Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem weren't a great army, yet in their ordinary acts of faithfulness, rebuilding the temple, they were to terrify the nations around them. By rebuilding Jerusalem, the nations are put on watch, that ultimately it's not they who are in charge, despite all their wealth, despite all their temporal power. In God's dwelling with his people, the Lord is proclaimed as the one who is over all the nations. And so it is today that God's kingdom will be built by ordinary people. When you look at your own life or the life of the church, it might seem small or irrelevant compared to how big the world is. Just from the perspective of the world, it might be easy to be indifferent about it. It might not seem all that impressive. But as the church is built, 
in the everyday decisions to go God's way and not the way of the world. The world is put on notice of the God who is ultimately in control. Well, for the Israelites, there would have been the temptation to see what they were doing as irrelevant, as being too small to be of any consequence. But God shows them that through their ordinary act of faithfulness, they would change the world. And so for us, as we each contribute our own small piece to the church, as we work on our one brick to fit into the building, it might seem irrelevant, but what we're building will last for eternity. For the Israelites, there would have been the temptation of falling into an easy life. If they started to build the temple, the Persians might not like it. They might face opposition. And so for us, Christian living might be difficult. It might mean having less status, earning less money, not living so comfortably. Now as then, it might be that doing nothing, ignoring what God has called us to, will give us a more comfortable life. If we ignore God, we might end up with more prosperity but it won't be the prosperity that lasts. Zechariah calls us to pursue the blessing that God has for us. When we're tempted to give up, he calls us to return to the Lord. Well, there's one more point to mention. You see, Zechariah calls on the people to look back at their past, to see God's faithfulness to his word of judgment, and to use that as the basis for trusting in his faithfulness in their day, for trusting in his word of blessing for the future. And as Christians, the New Testament calls us to do the same. So as Paul writes in the book of Romans, on the cross, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. At the cross, God was faithful to his word of judgment. God took faithfulness in carrying out judgment to the point of paying the price himself for our sin. As we look at the cross, we see the depth of God's faithfulness to his word of judgment. And at the same time, we're drawn to trust in God's faithfulness to us in giving us blessing, beginning in part in this life, but ultimately in the world to come.